welcome to Craft, Design, Edit, Sleep, Repeat with hosts Lisa Conway and Nikki Jensen. Listen as we take a deep dive into the business of fiber craft design. Well, good morning, good afternoon. We have a very special guest with us today, Nikki. I'd like you to meet Michelle Hazel. Michelle helped me get into tech editing by answering all my questions, and she works with a very dear friend of mine, Nathan Taylor, the sockmetician, which is why I've invited her today. Welcome, Michelle. Nice to meet you. Thanks. It's great to be here um, talking about lots of my favorite things hopefully so mm-hmm. <laughs> well anytime it's it's fiber related we we can pretty much talk forever can't we <laughs> so today's topic is how we as tech editors help our designers that think really out of the box when a designer has a new technique or a new way of construction, how do we help them word it so that others understand? And I've really asked Michelle here because she just edited Nathan's new book on double knitted brioche, which truly is a new technique. We can't find any reference to this type of knitting anywhere else. And believe me, we've looked. (laughs) So Michelle, What's it like editing a book, first of all? <laughs> yeah, um, books are obviously big. Um, I'm, I think you've got the two sides to Nathan's book, particularly in that his book is not only a collection of patterns, but it's a teaching book, it's a storybook, and it's got a whole lot of extra to just a collection book if you like but you've got the whole additional layer of continuity within the book so a bit like if you were working on a collection for a a yarn manufacturer or a particular designer you've got to keep in mind that things have to be equivalent and consistent and all of that um i think I I enjoy the process of editing a book, actually, I think because there's much more space generally than than you get, certainly with the the other print work that I do, which is magazines or pattern leaflets, which have to be very much more concise. Sometimes with with books, there's more opportunity for notes and more opportunity for illustration. And that's quite rewarding to me. but yeah, obviously the whole process takes a lot longer too. So it's not, you know, a week's turnaround. It's, in Nathan's case, several years um, from the initial concept, which I was lucky enough to be kind of in on, right up to the finished article. And that's almost like, I don't know, raising a child. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's a big, it's a big Did thing. Did you uh, edit just the patterns or all of the copy I did all of the copy um yeah and that was a bit outside my norm I have to say I've worked on some tutorial leaflets and things like that before 
so it's not completely new. And my previous job was in um, technical writing in the healthcare field. So that's not particularly Mm -hmm. new, new. Um, But I think Nathan felt that he didn't want to have multiple people. He didn't want a pattern editor and a copy editor if I would do all of it. Mm -hmm. So I did. Um, Which in in this case, I think, was nearly essential because the technique is so integral obviously, to the patterns, because, as Lisa says, it's so new and so different. So that that almost had to had to. Did happen, you have really. to learn how to do double-knitted brioche in order to be able to edit it? Yeah. <laughs> I did. And, and that's why it was um, such a unique project in many ways, because I had to come at it almost in the role mm-hmm. of a pupil. So the first manuscript was all I had the, the book as you have hope I guess you've seen it already is very rich in terms of imagery and there are links to tutorials and there's everything you could possibly want I didn't have that I had the written word and obviously I had Nathan to talk to but that was good because it meant that those words had to express everything so you, you had to be able to do the technique just from the bare instructions. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not, I've done brioche, I've done double knitting. I wouldn't say I was a guru in either of them. So in many ways, it was a almost a, a trial um, process of the book at first and then moved on to the more regular, you know, editing Yeah, and I can see that being beneficial because sometimes when it's something that we're very familiar with and we already understand, we could we could gloss over things um, just by being by virtue of you know I know what he means, so that's probably fine. Mm -hmm. Versus if it's brand new to you, just like the knitter who's going to be opening this book, then you're you're seeing it like you said with the pupil's eyes and um and learning it mm. for the first time and and that could that could help you to make sure that everything is as as clear as it needs to be mm. yeah ta- talking about the um glossing over i recently did a pattern that was using icord and because i'm so used to the typical instructions of slipping it back to the other needle um, I didn't really pay close attention to the fact that she, she was using double pointed needles. So you would tend to slip it to the other end. Mm. Now there were two factors there because there was still s- other stitches on the double pointed needle. It made sense to me that she was slipping them back. But in the end she came back and she said, Oh, we both missed this. And I was like, yep. I did. I missed it <laughs> because you're so used to the technique. You, you don't pay attention to the, that mm-hmm, little detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas Michelle, I know that Nathan has talked in the past and I'm using Nathan as an example here because he does write so out of the box. Um, Nathan said in the past that you often pick up needles and test what he's doing do you find yourself doing that with other designers or other patterns as well how how often do you actually pick up a set of needles and try something I 
would say I often do for something where it is a tutorial type. So a special buttonhole or an unusual cable or something where the wording is along the lines of do this thing, move your arm forward, do that thing. Where it's hard to get your head around exactly what's going on, I find it much easier. I mean, you can see I've got a stack of needles behind me and I always have somewhere in my in my chair pocket a ball of wool. And I just, I, I don't, you, you don't do the whole thing. So I might make a little swatch and do a buttonhole just to check that those instructions where it says cast on, they mean to the right hand needle or the left, you know, to get mm -hmm. that precision. Right. And I'm a, I think I got into tech editing through making mistakes. So for me, the only way to really, the proof of, of the pudding almost is in the doing. Um, and I'll, so I, not every pattern by any means, but where something's a bit odd, a bit unusual, and I also, I'm a great believer in model making. So for some of the more unusual constructions, I like to make either a fabric or a paper model of the pieces. And then I might mark the seams in a particular color to see how it all fits together. Um, so I'm quite a, a visual mm -hmm. editor. I like, very, and I like to have much, things in my hand. Yeah, very much hands-on in the mm, way you do I do things. that with um, when I'm editing crochet. I find with knitting, I'm mm -hmm. I'm so familiar with knitting because I've been knitting for 30 years um, that I don't need to do it most of the time. But with crochet, it's like it's like my second language. Um, so quite often, if there's a stitch pattern that's you know anything other than put put your next stitch in the stitch below it, I'll quite often have to get a hook out and, and test it out and make sure that everything is going to land where where it says it's going to land. Yeah. I'm really <laughs> glad you said that because yeah. I do that too. <laughs> I sometimes think it's it's not cheating, but I sometimes feel that it's a bit, I should be cleverer <laughs> than this. But then I think, well, no, actually. Also, I've done it where there's been a really big question mark with a designer where almost I say this and you say that. And actually making a swatch and showing them and saying, well, look, this is what I did. This stitch turns into that stitch. This is what I'm talking about. You can get much more of an understanding. Yeah, I've done you. that too. And, and, and you do seem to hold those conversations with your designers. Are you close enough that you do those in person? Are they always done, you know, online? As, I mean, is... It's much more common now than it was when you started to be able to do these face-to-faces across the distance. Yeah, absolutely. One of the first, the first magazine I started working on, I'm lucky in that their offices are down the road. It's a 30-minute drive. So there have been occasions where I, I used to do some extra work for them as well. So physically being in the room with editors, magazine editors, I mean, um, that has been helpful. I don't tend to meet clients much other than socially. So at yarn shows and such, if we find out we're both going to be there, well, yes, we'll go and have a cup of tea and talk about often future plans and scheduling and, oh, I'm really pleased this went really well, or actually I'm going to revise that because it didn't go very well, that kind of thing. But yeah, the, 
the, one of the silver linings of the last three years has been that I can say to someone, I really need to talk you through this. Could we Zoom at 10 o'clock? And we can literally, and sharing screens is so wonderful because you can literally say, oh, well, row such and such for the chart if, and, and point out. And it makes the job so much easier than having to write notes. And obviously, a tech editor's job, the fundamental thing you're doing is almost telling somebody they've <laughs> gone wrong. It's a very difficult psychological position to be in. And somehow face to face where you can be a lot kinder because they can see your facial expression and hear your tone, which you can't in an email. It's You have to be very, very careful when you're communicating just in the written word. So for me, yes, absolutely. The the zooming, you know, um, video call is, is wonderful. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the earliest patterns I did was a brand new designer. It was her very first work. And it wasn't so much that the pattern was complicated as it was in creating the various sizes. It was a lace cardigan. And trying to figure out how to word it because there was some very unique ways of shaping that had to be split out. Mm. And so we zoomed for like an hour and a half just trying to figure out how to organize it so that the sizing made sense. And that was a real help, at least for me. I hope it helped her. Um, but I know that for me, it was really helpful. Be and it was so early in my career, too. So it was like, okay, I, I really want to just chat about this because I'm not positive how this should go. And let's work it out mm -hmm. together. It makes it a collaborative process, mm -hmm. which I feel like is our mm -hmm. job, is to collaborate with these designers. So, yeah, I, I love that part of the last three years. <laughs> we have to take the, take the good side where we can and all yes, of it. Don't absolutely. We? Yes, we do. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so have you ever run across something that the designer was saying in such a way that you felt it really could fit more into the traditional knitting language and then you had to convince them to reword it so that it made sense to the knitter mm. yeah I mean I think that's that's something you do see with perhaps people at the earlier stages of their designing maybe where they haven't necessarily got a huge background of knitting other people's designs to build on so I mean we could have a whole episode about what is the standard knitting language and I'm quite certain we'd <laughs> yeah. never come to a consensus agree but there comes a point where you almost have to say to someone a lot of your audience are going to expect this to be written this way and that's it comes down to also one of the things I like to do is, is talk to designers about who their mm. audience is because they might not be 
British knitters of a certain age who grew up with yarn company patterns that that use you know they don't say yarn over they say yarn round needle and old-fashioned things or they might be young new people who learnt to knit by YouTube who've never seen a written pattern because they've always watched mm. a film you know who are they what do they already know um and it's surprising actually it's hard to find out mm-hmm. you know so you've got to almost cater to a middle way so if you're going to say something i think you should the person knitting needs to be able to find it out from a book or the internet or someone who's been knitting longer than them you know that uh, <clears throat> and if it's not something that that is easily accessible then perhaps you need to be adding a tutorial or notes or 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 what have you it, it... but yes i mean there are certain like you say about sites splitting out sizing that's something I, I felt that very much comes with experience, that you've seen other patterns that do that and the ways that other people grade. So you you perhaps might find that easier, you know, later on. But collaborating with the design is fantastic like that because that really is the, you know, two heads are better than one. Yes. Most definitely. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite parts of the job too is collaborating with designers. And I think that you can set a tone of we're we're doing this together. We're finding the best way mm-hmm. to write this pattern. We're finding anything that could be misinterpreted. Um, and and if you can if you can manage that, then they'll thank you for finding their mistakes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's lovely when clients realise that. I have one lady who, um, she always writes at the, the, the sort of last email of a particular pattern. She always writes at the bottom, remember, we are better mm. together. <laughs> and I oh, really I love try that. And, she's so sweet. I love that. You know, that, that that's true. That, And sometimes you, you beat yourself up, don't you, when you, you haven't necessarily found everything or someone points something out. And then you have to you try really I mean yeah and you think well actually what I did find is is hopefully much you know more of a problem than, than what I didn't find and that you know yeah because like like I said the the I-court situation which what does it matter if you tell them to slip it back to the other needle or slip it to the other end of the double pointed needle in the long run they're still going to get the mm-hmm. I-court right? Either, either direction is correct. So yes, I did have to remind myself that it was a minor error that I missed, that it wasn't critical to the end product. And what I had had found was much more critical. Mm. Thank you, because I'm, I'm actually now feeling better about having made that mistake. Yeah, I had a moment like that last week, too. I've, I've had this designer I've been working with for about maybe eight months now, but she sent me a lot of patterns. And she always lets me know when there's something, usually it's just a small style thing, like, oh, there was a period still missing at the end of this or whatever it was. She always makes a point to let me know when something's been found. And I always beat myself up. And then last week she asked me for a meeting and she asked me to edit her book. So I was like, 
I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I'm the worst tech editor. She always finds something I missed. And, and sure enough, uh, she, she doesn't have that impression at all. <laughs> no, no. And <clears throat> excuse me, if, if they had a problem, exactly. they wouldn't come back, you know, if, yes, I think the, we are perfectionists, aren't we? That's, we wouldn't do the job if mm -hmm. we weren't. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves that perfectionism can, this is, I'm, this is what Nathan himself actually said to me, not that many weeks ago, about something in his book. And he said, you know, it's all very well being a perfectionist, but you take it too far. And I said, no, <laughs> yeah, actually, maybe I Isn't do. Isn't that why he hired you? No. <laughs> Well, there is that. I don't think he's got any ground to speak on because he is one of the most perfectionist designers I have ever worked for. You know, when when it's it's startling. Um, and once I actually had to show him an example of the not perfectionist designers work, anonymized, of course. And he was absolutely <laughs> shocked. It was quite... You know, I bet he would be because knowing Nathan and, and having talked with Nathan over this last three years about the process of writing the book and having to remind him that, you know what, it's okay if it's not perfect when it goes out. We really had to work on him with that. Let me tell you, the whole group of us, it was just like, Nathan, it's okay. At some point, it's still got to just get mm -hmm. done. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's absolutely true. And I, I think particularly dealing with something so innovative as, as well that, you know, that, I guess it's, it's, it's like any massive new thing isn't it? it it's going to have a learning process and that's that's yeah. to be expected and, and when right. this new process gets into other knitters hands they're probably going to innovate on it further so you it's mm -hmm. not necessarily necessary for the first version to be perfect Exactly. And that's what many of us have, have tried to remind him on a regular basis. We have one other member of the group who is a very innovative designer that comes at things very much from Nathan's perspective in many ways. But she takes Nathan's work and expands on it. And he loves that. He absolutely mm -hmm. is thrilled. She has already innovated some things within his double-knitted brioche that we're just now trying to convince her it's time to write mm -hmm. the patterns mm -hmm. because she is brand new. She's only got two patterns out there. She's got two out. She's got a third one that um, we're working on that'll come out in June. So, and of course I've ended up being her tech editor, which is oh, that's really great. fun. <laughs> that's good. I'm, I'm actually doing my very first test knit because I, knew the minute she started knitting this project I said okay I'm going to edit it but then I'm going to test knit this one because I really want to to make that item and I really want to test everything mm -hmm. in the pattern yeah I, and I think this, that's a good idea it's, it, on occasions we couldn't do mm -hmm. it with everything could we but no yeah. oh my gosh no um <laughs> 
if I knit everything that came across my desk, I mean, there's been a, so many that I would have mm-hmm. loved to. The the lace cardigan, for example, I would have loved to have sat down and, and knit that, but I just, you know, there was just no way. Um, but yeah, so she takes Nathan's work and she expands on it. And it's just been fun because getting the two of them together, oh my gosh, it is amazing. <laughs> Isn't it exciting though how, how fast this is moving? Because when I was thinking about coming on, on your show and, and talking about this in particular, I thought Nancy Marchant wrote the brioche textbook, if you like, only in 2009. Mm-hmm. Now that, in knitting terms, was five minutes ago. Yeah. So to have gone from that, where this comes into what we were saying about knitting language and, and, and specialist language for new things, that language only really became set down in print in, in that book. So it's evolving so quickly. And the idea that now that another knitter is taking on that work and, and taking it further, that's brilliant, isn't it? Isn't it a good time to be around all this? Oh, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And I love the fact that Nathan has built this group around him that think in that manner. You know, the I've been slowly working my way through Nathan's book because, of course, my introduction to, to uh, tech editing came thanks to Nathan and introducing me to Michelle. So... I've been slowly working my way through the book. I love the way he looks at the detail of how those stitches go together. And I've learned so much from him and this group on how to look at literally how the threads move through the knitting. I mean, I've been able, I've, I've been knitting for nearly 50 years. I it can read my knitting very easily, although this test knit is a triple knitted. And let me tell you, learning to read triple knitting is a whole new skill. Totally. And Michelle, of course, probably knows. <laughs> yes. <coughs> Sorry, I've got rug my throat. Yes, I it really does make you sharpen your wits. Um, and that's that's quite rewarding as an editor, actually, particularly when, you know, you, you do a lot of it. it. It doesn't ever become boring, don't get me wrong, but there's only so many stocking stitch cardigans mm-hmm. in five sizes that you yeah. can edit. You, know, you do get without something a bit more challenging. Yes. Uh, yes. And certainly as well, some of the... Um, you know, people, other people around who are doing interesting things with the way the the yarn passes through and specific stitches that are unusual. That I find absolutely fascinating. You know, it, it's um, it's really exciting. The the different styles of construction that are happening today. Mm. Um, I mean, how long has it been since? first person created the knitted in top down set in sleeve 
Ooh. Or yeah. I've been I've I've had a couple of people around me that have knitted the ziggurat style mm. sweaters. And the construction of those is so fascinating. Um, I will link to s- some of the patterns for that because they s- they're top down, they're set in sleeves, and th- the way she creates like a whole new shape, uh, like a V-shaped neckline starting top down with a set in sleeve. Oh my gosh. It is, you, I literally watched a friend um, knit a a swatch that was the entire upper portion of the sweater, just trying to figure out the technique that was used because it is so new and so unique that she couldn't visualize it, just reading it from the page. And as an editor, that's one of the things that, that popped into my head when I, we were saying, you know, you've got to sometimes pick up the needles and how much of knitting would it take to actually figure out, yes, this really works, right? And there's, there's so many things happening in our world, in our knitting world right now. I don't know if the crochet world is quite as innovative but the knitting world there's just so much happening and it's so fun as an editor to get those things coming across our desk and seeing oh how did you figure this out (laughs) right yeah I, I think it's almost that it's really refreshing to see people breaking away from what I call the pattern cutting style of knitting, where it's based on essentially what the woven sewers are doing. So a piece is cut to shape and then it's seamed together, which knitters borrowed, uh, I think just culturally and also because it made for quicker, shorter patterns. I think there's, there's some of the knitting historians have probably got a lot to say about all of this. But now we're moving to a much more almost like a draping style, aren't we? Where knitted fabric is being made to fit the form and from the top down, a lot of it, seamless. Very, very exciting. But it, yeah, the geometry sometimes. Mm. <laughs> exactly. It really stretches our, our math mm-hmm. brains. Mm. It really does. And I laugh because geometry was where my math skills just went (laughs) down the tubes. And it's not because I didn't understand geometry. It's because I had a bad teacher that insisted Mm -hmm. that all we do is memorize. Right? And so I didn't get the practical applications. I was 12. Come on, show me how this fits my real life. And guess what I've done my entire life, right? Is And when I it dawned on me that it was all geometry... I nearly quit knitting. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Because I've I had you this, mean. you know, aversion to the word geometry for so long. And then I thought, no, wait a minute. What this tells me is that the grade I got in that class wasn't representative of what I could really do. 
I had to Absolutely. remind myself that you know, it's another one of those situations where, you know, you have to quit beating yourself up. Yeah. Right? I, I think that people are very much afraid of maths. They're very much, a lot of people have your experience of a teacher who wasn't a teacher at all in the sense that they didn't educate the pupil. <laughs> they made things worse. And in my former life, I used to um, teach statistics to nurses. And the number of people who came through the door who said, I hate maths, it's the first thing they said. And you thought, right, okay. My answer to that was always, can you pay a bill? Can you book a holiday? Can you work out what things are cheaper in the supermarket? You don't hate maths. You're doing maths mm -hmm. all the time. And designers sometimes say, oh, couldn't do that too mm -hmm. much maths. When actually it's a mindset and maybe, yeah, teachers have a lot yeah. to answer for. <laughs> Yeah. I agree. I agree. And and as a former teacher, that's that's really kind of a funny thing for me because I was an educator in my former life. And so yeah, we do have a lot to answer for. Mm -hmm. And it the I can point to the the good teachers I had in my life that led me to want to be a teacher and say, no, I want to be like this person, not that person. I want to be the one that helps the kid learn the why, not the how. Because if you teach a kid the why, the how comes naturally. Um, I have homeschooled all three of my children at advanced levels I will admit, when it came to calculus, I found an outside teacher. <laughs> Can't blame you. And that's a fair choice, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know, um, I have one in college. I have one that will be graduating next year that could have graduated last this last December. She has literally accomplished all of her core uh, credits. So everything from this January on is extra, literally. Um, I've got one that's been a little slow to start, but let's face it, he graduated the year of the pandemic. The, the, the failure to launch on that one in part was the world. But... I, I, I can walk through life knowing that my education degree didn't go to waste. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a role, though, as editors, that part of what we do, particularly with designers who are at the beginning of their career, part of it is a, is a form of education in the sense that you want to say to them the why. You want to say, well, I think it might be better if you said this like this because... Not yes. you must, but I. Some also another thing is is about saying, well, I've come across people making a mistake here because, mm -hmm. what have you? And it's about that kind of. There's nothing nicer for me as an editor when you see somebody take on board what you've said and not do the same mm -hmm. thing again. 
that's yeah. so rewarding. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And also the, the opposite, actually, where you say you suggest something to somebody and they come back with a really good reason why you're wrong. That's also very satisfying, yeah. too. And I'll bet you Nathan does that to you a lot. <laughs> Sometimes. Whether he's right or not. <laughs> it, it, to be fair, he doesn't, actually. We, we've only ever once had, had a real moment where, where I've said A and he said B and, and we agreed to we agreed to differ. Um, no, I, I think it's, um, yeah, it, it, it is a, and it's a, it's a process, isn't it? We're also educating ourselves. Every pattern you edit influences mm-hmm. the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's particularly true with these more modern, unusual things. The more of those you see, the less out of the box they seem yeah. if you like and I think right. that is a very important role of the tech editor especially in these out of the box designs to take the designer's vision and say how can we make this fit the language of knitting that we have so that knitters will be able to understand the vision and recreate it mm-hmm. Um, I have one that I'm working on right now that's, um, it's a pair of shorts with a lot, a lot of shaping. Um, It's seamed, but there's, yeah, there's just a lot of shaping to get these four pieces of fabric to become shorts. And um, we were talking about how are we going to grade this? How can we get all of the sizes like without writing out every size line by line nine times. And um, and I recalled a pattern by another designer that I had knit that had a table that had each row of the design or each row for each size on row one, you're increasing on row two, you're binding off or whatever it is. Um, and so I was able to bring that to the designer and say, maybe we can do it this way to make it more manageable so it's not a hundred page pattern right mm. that, that sounds oh yeah <laughs> i i have to say i i've knit, i've worked on a couple of skirts but the lower the lower body you know between waist and socks is a bit of a desert to me <laughs> i must admit there are so few knitted lower body garments that that yeah, grading shorts. Knitted lower body garments don't necessarily flatter the body as much as other knitted garments might. Um, for for those of us who are not of a <laughs> it's self like persuasion, it's yeah, <laughs> especially yes. you know, as I I actually get more lower body garments than you would probably expect a lot of them have negative ease which obviously is not going to work for everybody um these shorts have positive ease uh but they and they're seamed so there's some structure to it but they're they're knit sideways in cotton and i'm like i was gonna say i knew the pair of shorts you were referring to the cotton is is driving me bonkers because the gauge is so all over the place. Every time I get a design in cotton, we have gauged issues. Um, 
but I mean, the pictures I've seen so far, they, they look great. Like I'm really excited to see how, how other, um, other knitters create, uh, their projects as it goes through testing. Um, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a big challenge. <laughs> yeah. Especially grading that to make it look mm-hmm. right. You know, I mean, such a, such a unique garment. Well, a lot of, and, and we had a big discussion about this pair of shorts because we were talking about the fiber and how it would affect the way the material stretched in wearing and how that was going to need well, to yeah, be dealt and with. I, I would have expected because, because they're knit sideways, but they're cotton, I would have expected them to grow in length because they're cotton, but they're still actually growing in um, width instead. instead. Yeah, the row gauge is growing instead of the stitch gauge. And that's very common with cotton. Yeah, but usually you you think because like when you're when you're knitting side to side and in cotton, you'd expect gravity to pull it down when it's worn. But that's not what's happening right. in this case because it was knit sideways. I think that goes back to a little bit of what Nathan has taught me in terms of the stitch construction and why a stitch would stretch lengthwise versus widthwise, even though the gravity is pulling it width. Um, it, when you combine the knowledge of what cotton does, it's it tends to be... Let me think about this so I can say it. Okay, you've got your stitch with the V at the bottom and the curl at the top. And so what's happening, it's pulling against that curl at the top and making it narrower while at the same time making it longer. And cotton will naturally do that regardless of where the gravity is affecting Mm. it. I think the way I've said that makes yeah. sense. I'm not no, positive. No, it does. And, and that's certainly what we're finding um, in this case. Yeah, just wasn't, wasn't what I expected. But I should have known it wouldn't be what I expected. <laughs> and there again, that's another thing about being a tech editor with knowledge of fibers. Mm. Right? I have that unique um, background of coming from spinning as well as knitting as you know and and I I weave as well so I can see how the fibers work in the different constructions and have a little bit more knowledge of of what that fiber is likely to do and I realize that's unique to me right and but it just means that my clients come to me because I have that unique knowledge in ways. I seem to be working with a lot of clients that are translating their patterns into English. And mostly what I'm doing is making sure that the grammar is correct in English within the knitting mm-hmm. world. That's, that's the biggest proportion of my clientele mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, um, 
I mean, I, I have to say, I, I really admire people who write patterns in more mm. than one language. I think that's amazing. But there is certainly sometimes a, a, a sort of, it's not so much language, is it? It's almost dialect that, that English knitting patterns say things in a certain way where when it's been, because I, I, some of the print work that I do involves, um, say, a yarn manufacturer writes their patterns in other languages and they have them translated into English, but they're not always in knitter's English, if that makes any sense. Yes. So a, a pattern translated from French will suit a French knitter down to the ground, but that's not how British magazine readers do things. So, for, for example, the French seem to like to make a rib neckband separately and then graft it on, which is something unheard of in in the sort of older clientele who, who buy our magazines. They'd just say, what? What are you talking about? We pick up and knit. So it's about translating that. So where they say, start your neckband um, and then graft live stitches, we say, no, no, don't do that. Pick up and knit the same number around. And those sorts of, of things are a kind of different level aren't they almost yes. a nuance submitting and I, I and that's what I deal with quite a bit because in many cases they're a designer that works in their own language and they've hired a translator to translate it that doesn't really understand knitting language and then you have the added issue of the switching it to English knitting language. So the, the bulk of the corrections that I'm making are not to how the pattern is written, but making sure that the language is going to be understandable by the English speaking knitter. And it makes it a lot easier to tell them they've made mistakes <laughs> in some ways, because it's not their fault right? They, they didn't write, write the translation, someone else did. Um, and, and in some cases, they are translating them themselves. And they know that their English isn't good enough. Um, I have this dear, sweet, adorable, um, lover to death, Icelandic knitter that I've started working with. And um, she knows that while she's translating her patterns into English, her English is definitely a second language for her and she knows there's going to be a multitude of errors. And so it's real easy to say, well, we would say it like this. You could say it like this or this, right? There's a lot of, it's not cut and dry. In a lot of cases, it's, um, and she's also very innovative in her designs. So there's that added out of the box kind of thinking to, to a degree because she's not writing the typical, typical Icelandic sweater. And so it's, it's a su suggestion. Well, okay, you've said it like this. You could say it like this or like this. And it would mean just, it would, it would translate just a little bit better. And there's a lot of that that I do. Uh, rather than cut and dry, this is, this is incorrect. You need to say it like this. It's, it's a lot of, 
Well, maybe you could put it like this. That kind of thing. So, so apart from picking up the needles, what do you both do when you get a really out of the box design and there's, you know, you need to grade it or something like that? How do you how do you approach something that that's so different? Do you have favorite resources? Hmm. I think it, it's difficult to say that there's any one particular thing that I would go for. I mean, I, I you can probably see behind me, I've got a massive collection of books. Um, the sort of basic standard Maggie Rigetti, Shirley Page and those books. I'm also a big fan of... Um, Monsi Stanley's books. She she goes into quite a lot of detail about stitches as well, um, which they're always useful resources. In many ways, I think I model making is is a big one for me, um, and also thinking about sometimes like I, I think I said earlier on about swatching and seeing how different parts would fit together. Um, the other thing I generally, I mean, I, I, yeah, I suppose it partly also I'll, I'll look at what's going on in the sewn world. So if, if somebody's taking their influence from how something would be done there, well, I'll go and, you know, particularly when you get something that's maybe a, a jacket or something like that, you think, well, yeah, why is that made like that? What are they what are they doing? Why? Um Yeah, and it I also I think it's important to know what's out there in terms of tutorials. You know, if, if somebody's writing their own tutorial for a particular stitch or say or recommending one, obviously as an editor you would go and watch it to check it's the mm -hmm. right thing. Right. And to check it's doing what they say it's doing. But also is there something else out that out there um that maybe does things differently or is a is a cast on called by a different name um you know thing, things like that and and there aren't many editing resources themselves i i think in some ways that's a good thing we don't have this manual of rules that we have to stick to but in some ways it would be quite nice sometimes to just say oh, i wonder how other people and that's where colleagues come in isn't it where you it's great to have somebody that you can get hold of and say oh, I don't know what to do here or am I along the right lines um that's one of the things I I like about my magazine work in that it's done in pairs so we we do half each and oh, review so <clears throat> you've always got somebody to almost second edit your work but also to ask questions and to discuss and say, well, I would write it like this. What do you think? And that's sometimes you, you could do that with a designer, couldn't you? They're, they could be your resource. You'll say, well, what were you thinking when you, you know, what, what was your aim here? Or have I got this right? Or, you know, that, that kind of, um, that kind of thing. Being really think, open to that conversation between you and the designer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think the other thing, I going back to what we were saying about geometry and maths, 
I should declare it a tame resource in that my husband's a mathematician <laughs> who specialised in topology at university. So if I have a question about geometry, I have someone oh, that's to fantastic. ask. It's great. <laughs> Isn't it yeah. wonderful when you have those people in your in your life? Um, I would have to say that the modeling is that Michelle mentioned is is a common thing for me. Um, graph paper is a must yeah. in my life. There is always a pad of graph paper around, mm-hmm. always, and um, I will often resort to, especially when I'm checking charts. I will resort to actually recreating it on graph paper just so that I can see that the stitch counts are working because I find myself not able to compare what's on the screen. I also print oh, every really? pattern. Do you? Um, interesting. Because I have discovered that I, I edit much better on the piece of paper than I do on the screen. Now I'm, it, I do have a very odd visual issue that affects depth perception. And therefore, I think sometimes that interferes with what I'm seeing on the screen. So I print every pattern in order to edit it. So I have a file drawer of patterns. um, And I edit it with a pencil and, you know, a a red pencil, um, my my little (laughs) two-tone pencil. For those of you who can see here. My little two-tone oh, pencils. Oh, cute. Oh, nice. <laughs> the, the girls can see what I'm holding up is a pencil that on one end is blue and on the other end is red. On this one, the red side is definitely it's um, a lot shorter. much shorter than <laughs> <Yeah>. the blue. <laughs> but the blue was a lot longer. It does. They get, they get just kind of reversed in my hand, and I don't necessarily use one color for uh. a certain thing or anything. But these are my friends. These, these are all over the house. <laughs> Because it doesn't matter. I don't have to be sitting directly at my desk mm-hmm. to work until I'm actually plugging numbers into the spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah I'm right. Uh... And I've been doing a lot more of that on a laptop of late. So that's yeah. another part I'm of, of it. I'm but... a slightly different generation. I've been using a computer since I was five years old. So I do everything, all of my editing on the computer. But I do love to use Stitch Mastery to chart things out. Um, so that's my version of graph paper. But a lot of times, you know, if it's whether it's short rows or a lace pattern over increases, I love using Stitch Mastery to make sure that it's all working out. Yeah, yeah and I'm see, that's saying. where I automatically pull yeah. the graph paper out. It's just... I'm a mixture. I, I, I don't know... Some things I will chart with Stitch Mastery. Other things like um, mm. sock heels. I have a really odd way of drawing them as a diagram on squared paper just because that's the only way I can get it right in my head and it takes five minutes. Yeah, and I know you've, it's you've got me there. Sock heels um, are the only thing I do on paper. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? We both do. I must say, I do occasionally like a change. And if I'm doing something like charts against written instructions, I like to do that on paper. I find that hard work on the screen. I've got two Mm. big screens. And also just for a breath of fresh air in terms of location, you know, take take yourself away from the the computer Mm -hmm. for a little while. Yeah. 
and and edit mm -hmm. on paper. Yeah. Yeah. All of my first edits are done on paper. Every single one of them. Um, I'd, I'd because, drown yeah. paper if I did that. Uh, I, I have a professional grade printer over here that my husband insisted upon getting, which has been the bane of my existence for many things, but it does print double-sided. So, you know, and, and it's a laser printer. So the ink, la even with the number of patterns I've been printing and everything, the, the ink lasts for years. Nice. It's expensive up front, but it, it lasts forever. So, um, yeah, I I print everything first and I go through it first with, on paper because I know I catch more that way. Every pattern that I've ever tried to st stick just to the screen, I've missed too much, in my opinion. So I it, it gets double edited in the long run because I do, I, I track all my time when I'm doing the paper edit, but then when I go to um, actually do it on the file... I'm reading it a second time almost to catch where all those edits go. And, and so, uh, yeah, I, I do catch a lot more that way. It's just the way my eyes work. Yeah. So I think when I'm, when I'm grading these kind of unique constructions, I have to imagine it, in something that's more familiar, you know, like I got this one, Lisa checked my grading for me, but it, it was a front panel and then seamed on side panels and then seamed on sleeves, but the sleeves didn't attach to the side panel. They attached to the front panel. And so I'm going, well, this is kind of like a set-in sleeve, but it's kind of like a drop shoulder. It was an interesting hybrid. Mm. And um, yeah, just wrapping your head around how those pieces fit together. Well, and, and checking the grading on that was different too, because you had to literally visualize each mm -hmm. panel and what each panel was doing before the sizing and the stitch counts made sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we, we double check each other's grading. That's, that's, we have a, a special deal there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that one, that one was definitely a challenge to figure out where everything was fitting in. And, oh, that, that's where the schematic, mm. and, and that's where sitting down with a piece of graph paper and drawing it, for me, would have helped Which... me grade better because um, I would have been able to see how the pieces were being shaped mm. and where the changes needed to happen for each size. Because that's another thing is, is on grading that one, where do you increase or decrease sizing was very dependent on how that center panel followed up the front of the body. Right. That, that sounds really challenging and relating that to a known set of body measurements, you know, we don't have enough 
you know, we, we only have sleeve length, chest, waist. You know, a lot of the angular measurements, I sometimes find that particularly you, you think, well, what's the angle where this measurement meets that measurement? And how is that going to... And I think sometimes you, it's easy to get very wrapped up in that, isn't it, with these... Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps hopefully the the knowledge of fibre comes to the rescue and you think, well, actually there's quite a lot of drape in that area. So if it's half a centimetre different here than there, well, mm, you know, it, it's about understanding how the garment is going to work. But yeah, coming back to the, the cotton shorts. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a really important tool for me on both of those designs has been um, the ASTM sizing charts because you have so many more body point measurements to work with um, because, you know, like figuring out on the shorts, we have to figure out like how much um, it's not short row shaping because it's sideways. So it's like it uses increases and decreases instead, but mm-hmm. how much booty shaping do you need right and and how much length the the ASTM has a a crotch length which measures from the front waist down under to the back waist so we can kind of use that to figure out the the curve of the shaping of the front and back panels um but it's been really really mind-bending and yeah. and that goes back to understanding your sewing mm-hmm. construction. And fortunately, this designer is a sewer, so he's got a really yes. strong understanding yes. of that. And yeah. understanding the how you take a flat fabric and 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 make it curve, because if you can understand it from the sewing point of view with a, a fabric that doesn't mold stretch. The, yeah. and stretch yeah. the I, I wanted a different word than than stretch because it's, no, it's, it's the way it molds the body yeah. right yeah. Clean, and I suppose yeah yes so at that point when when you can understand how how to create the curves in a a piece of fabric that doesn't do that and then adjust for a fabric that does mm-hmm. it, it there there's a there's a big understand a big learning curve between those two things right yeah and And i I think that that there's also an element there where that i think the importance of test knitting is going to come in for things like that and i don't think there's any shame in that to say actually this is really unusual and we need to see how this works on Mm -hmm. a human body after and the two it's not one or the other, edit or test knit. It's edit and test knit. Oh, because... I'm I'm a firm pusher in doing both for mm-hmm. every pattern. I mean, very rarely would I have a pattern that doesn't need to be test knit. Um, I mean, even this triple knitted item, it's something as simple as a cowl. I, I was like, okay, I'm going to test knit this because I need to see, because there's some very unique construction in it. And I said, but I want you to make sure that this person tests it too, because I knew that that person had the knowledge to test knit all of the different aspects of it 
and let us know, hey, you need to reword this this way. Because it was just completely, it's, it's a triple knitted argyle cowl with Latvian braids that are reversible. So there's a Latvian braid on both the front and the back. Wow. That, yeah. That gives me, yeah, fear and excitement in <laughs> <Goosebumps>. equal measure. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like, okay, I'm going to test this because I, I, I want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Plus I want the item in the end. I said, but you, I want you to make sure that person test knits it. And she's like, oh, yes, he's already agreed. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming towards the end of it because her expected release date is, is in June. So we're getting there. Watch this space. I'm, I'm in, intrigued mm -hmm. about that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the Argyle with three okay. R's. With three R's. We, we tried to talk her out of it, but... Oh, well. I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's adorable. <laughs> so um, we have reached an hour, guys. Isn't that amazing we, that we could talk this long about something as simple as out-of-the-box tech could, editing? We could probably talk all day about out-of-the-box editing. <laughs> we really could. And, and if there's anything I would love to do, it would be to spend the day talking to the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we can we could count it as continuing professional education you know <laughs> oh definitely definitely um it this has been such a joy michelle i'm so happy you were able to join us um i would like our listeners to know how they can find you and are you taking new clients i am but in a fairly limited way um i am quite busy um and obviously i do have quite a lot of long-standing commitments um, I'm known as sticks and string which is s-t-i-x-n-s-t-r-i-n-g and my website is www.sticksandstring.com there you find me there um, if people want to get in touch that would be great I can't guarantee that I can take them on because as I say I am quite busy but um, yeah it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both and um yeah i'm very excited to to be uh, to be featured on your podcast well i tell you what we may just have to have you back oh well that would be a pleasure <laughs> this has been just but too much fun <laughs> i have to say do i have to edit another 460 page book <laughs> before i can get on here again? no no <laughs> uh -uh, no um just just make sure nathan keeps on writing the patterns that are in his backlog <laughs> Oh, I know. I we know. Have, we've got to work on that Northampton because he keeps saying the chart on that is is not doable. The right. the the shawl with that looks like the peacock feathers. Oh yeah. He oh. keeps saying the chart on that one is impossible, and so we've got to keep working on that one. Although I will happily say that he's finally, finally started working on writing the Genesis shawl. Well, good, good. When was that one? 2011, something like that? Uh, I, yeah, I wasn't <laughs> going to try and put a year on it, but it's quite a few years ago. That was quite early on. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I stopped nagging about that. I'd kind of forgotten about it. 
Oh, I haven't. I haven't quit <laughs> nagging him at all because I want that one in the worst way. I really do. <laughs> I love that shawl. Anyway, uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. Michelle, thank you so much. Nikki, I really appreciate your being here and have a great day. Don't miss the next episode where we'll chat with Kirsten Jordan, a digital marketing wizard who knows how to make social media work for small business. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you listen and join the conversation in our Ravelry or Facebook groups. For technical editing, find Lisa at arcticedits.com and Nikki at handknitsandhuga.com.